This afternoon, when we talk about the scientific revolution, we can probably change this <laughs> to Adam Smith. <laughs> we'll see about that later. So this afternoon, or this morning, I want to continue uh, to, to finish on our topic uh, on globalism, the international society. And yesterday we were looking at two main, main points, and that is, and those were international law and international society, substantively. yesterday, international law, international society. That's what we want to... Yeah. And we saw yesterday in the principle that the international law and uh, that governs the, um, the nations around the world and the international society, the laws which govern the union of nations into one society, uh, proceed from the natural law from the natural order, not from any convention of men, uh, agreement among the nations. So first of all, it comes from the natural order. It uh, proceeds from the natural social nature of man. And once a, a civilization becomes so highly developed and, and, and advanced that communication is, is worldwide and that the nations become interdependent upon one another to provide for their common good in their own nations, uh, then there's going to be a need for the nations to collaborate, as understood. And so we need to see the principles which, which govern uh, this union of, of nations in one international society. And that's where I think we left off yesterday. For those of you who have a copy of the, of the notes, uh, I think we're going to continue today on page, um, page 9. Let's see. Actually, page 8. The rights and duties of the nations. I think we saw the, the natural rights uh, with regard to uh, uh, the obligations with regard to the natural moral order, the non-juridical uh, order of charity and justice, legal justice, uh, things like this. We saw them. today we want to see the, um, the juridical duties of the nations. And we saw yesterday that every civil society is a true moral person, which therefore receives by nature all the rights which are required to the attainment of its natural end, both with regard to its citizens and other nations. And these rights imply corresponding duties, both with regard to citizens and with regard to the other nations. Right. We understood, we saw that clearly. If we have rights, uh, there are corresponding duties to those rights. And we must under especially focus on, on the sense of duty. Right. The exercise of these rights in the individual nations is limited by the duty of respecting the equal rights of the other nations. Right. 
and from the obligation which each nation has in supplying those things which are required for the international common good. These rights, seeing that they do not proceed from the will of the state or from custom, but rather from natural law, they cannot be abrogated but only determined by the concrete circumstances with regard to its application. So the determined precisions are given uh, by, the, by the positive law so that the natural law can apply with equity uh, you know, between the, the people and the nations. Now, we have a list of the principal natural rights of nations. The natural rights of every country. What are these main rights? Now, we can go into more detail uh, another time, but I'll try to give just a summary here. So what, is the right, what are the rights of, of our country, for example, of the United States? What are the rights of Canada, the rights of France, and so on, with regard to the other nations in, society, in, in the world? And the first right is the right to its own existence and its integrity. I think I may have mentioned this in general yesterday. Right? For the existence of every civil society is constituted by a certain territory, a determined multitude of people, and by a concrete form of government. Every nation, from the moment in which it appears capable of tending toward and attaining its proper end, right, has the right to its proper existence, and the other nations have to respect this right. You see, the, uh, the doctrine actually states that this right is the most fundamental of all the rights, just as the most fundamental right that you have is the right to live, the right to life. So it's the right to life of the nation once it's been conceived. You see. So it follows, that, it follows from this that by the natural law, not only is unjust aggression forbidden against a newly formed nation, but also any assistance to the act of unjust aggression from any other country. Well, that's understood. Sometimes there is even a moral obligation of coming to the aid of a nation suffering unjust aggression. As long as this can be done without any grave inconvenience or harm to the assisting nation or nations. And I put a note here that in the case of usurpation, after a lapse of time, if the citizens uh, consent to it, right, there may give rise to a prescription which will be in favor of accepting the usurper for the common good. And that's up to the citizens of, after a lapse of time in the case of, of usurpation, or someone taking over the country, for example. So that's the first right to its own existence. Second right is the right to its conservation and defense. So in order to preserve its physical and moral integrity, all civil societies have the right to use all those means which are necessary for its conservation and defense. Therefore, each nation has the right of establishing a national police force, a national army, a defensive treaty with other nations, and so on. The third point, the right to its independence. This right may also be called the right of sovereignty. But sovereignty can be understood in two ways. First of all, internal sovereignty. Right? And this is the faculty of governing its own citizens with full liberty. So it's within the nation. And secondly, external sovereignty, which is the independence from the authority of any other nation. It is preferable, however, to restrict the notion of sovereignty to the meaning of full internal liberty and to call independence the non-submission to extrinsic power. Because there can be a misunderstanding and misapplication of external sovereignty with regard to the collaboration with other nations. You see? So it's maybe a little bit clearer if we see it this way. 
When, however, a certain state becomes completely unable to rightly attain its proper end, such that it becomes necessary for it to exist under the protection of another nation, by that very fact, it defects from the notion of a true state and consequently is reduced to the status of either a colony or a nation under the protection of another nation as long as these adverse conditions uh, remain, exist. Independence can be lost in the following ways. When the intervention of another nation is necessary to defend the rights of that nation which has been unjustly harmed or placed in danger of existence. Or when it concerns the defense of another third nation who has also been unjustly harmed. Okay. Thirdly, when the essential rights of all, of all men of rights of men, I should say, cannot be provided by that nation in any way. Let's say the rights of men, rights of men, the natural rights that every man has, can no longer be provided in that nation. In fact, they're being continually everywhere uh, violated. Then it's no longer the common good, is it? It's not providing the common good at all of the citizens. Uh, those who have need of, an, of a copy of Globalism, raise your hands and, the, and uh, Isaac will give one to you. If you, if you don't have a copy yet, he'll, he has some copies. And lastly, when it concerns the defense of the essential human rights of the citizens, which are neg gravely neglected by the authority of a nation. So. Now the fourth natural right of a nation is the right to territorial and personal sovereignty. The right uh, of authority over its own territories, its own country, within its limits, to make laws, to direct everything towards the common good in the way that it chooses. It has that freedom. And over the persons in society, there's a certain yet yeah, authority of the state over the individuals in the state, over the citizens, to require them to obey just laws, to require them to observe those duties that are, that are necessary to obtain the common good in that country. Well, sure. Additionally, each individual... Oh, well, let me continue. But, but this right... Of over the territory, the sovereignty, in no way gives to the social authority the dominion or ownership of the land of the entire nation. Nor does the right of eminent domain apply to this national right in this way. It applies in a different, a different area. Additionally, every individual of every nation has the right to private property and the right to dispose of his property in a way that reasonably corresponds to his temporal welfare or that of his family, business, and so on. Understood. Now, the right to personal sovereignty means that the state has the right of binding its citizens to all those duties and activities that must be observed for the common good of the nation. Obviously, in view, uh, which are subject to the natural law and the law of God and the church. We understand that. Right? That's understood. The state, in exercising this right, must at the same time respect the natural rights of every individual without prejudice or discrimination. The laws and policies governing immigration and emigration are to be established by the authority of each nation in view of their common good. But it must be said that this cannot be forbidden as a general policy. But in view of the common good, maybe temp temporarily something must be done, uh, depends on the circumstances. And then the fifth point is that every nation has the right to pursue its own prosperity. So, in the economic, intellectual, moral, and spiritual orders. 
And the state, therefore, has the right to use all legitimate means, both necessary and useful, to assure its prosperity in each of these domains. That's just a general principle. I'm not getting into the details. That can be done somewhere else. We have to get to the... The next point is the, the principle of nationality. Okay? These people, they're, they're Spanish. Those people, oh, they're Italian. Oh, these are Polish. Those are Russians. Get off my land. <laughs> Only we can form a society. Only we form a nation. This is the, the French nation. This is the, uh, the, the English nation. This is the German nation. No one else can come in and be part of our nation. Is that right? Oh, let's see. The doctrine of the church in this domain is the following. The principle of nationality, whether understood in an unlimited sense or even in a restricted sense, is false and pernicious as far as establishing a nation or a civil society. So let's explain the terms. First of all, what do we mean? This will be important. Right? Nation, according to its etymology, is derived from nascor, nashi, natus, natusum, right? It means to be born. And as such, it applies mainly to the physiological union of a certain multitude of families, arising from the unity of origin, because uh, proceeding from the same family tree, family stock. In itself, it does not imply territorial limits, a nation, from natus. The second point is patria, or fa fatherland, our homeland, our country. Right? For example, the, our country of America. This refers mainly to, the, to territory, and it signifies the land where someone was born, or where one's parents and his ancestors are located. And the third point, the state. Right? This expresses, rather, the concept of supreme and independent authority to direct the citizens towards the common good you know, in, a, in a, a reasonable and uh, fitting manner. Now, the relation of these three things no. A nation may be dispersed into many states, totally or partially, with those of other nationalities, such as in the United States. Or, on the other hand, one state may comprise many diverse nations, such as the British Empire. A nation and a fatherland may subsist even if the state disappears. For example, Austria, in the previous war. Or it can be divided into many different states, as Poland in the 19th century. And lastly, a nation can also subsist a long time without actually forming a fatherland or even a state, such as the nomadic tribes and the Jewish nation. Now, definition of nation. Okay, the definition that has been chosen by this author. Um, by the way, the author that I'm using is a Jesuit author from Spain. Um, they've, they, they produced... Um, three and four volume sets of theology and philosophy, right? They're the, uh, the, the Jesuit professors in Spain. It's called the uh, uh, Summa of Scholastic Philosophy. I think, it's three or, I think it's three or four volumes, let me see. This is the three volume set. The Summa of Scholastic Philosophy, and it exists as far as I know only in Latin. So... Uh, the four-volume set of theology is the Summa of Scholastic Theology. Right. It's done by, uh, by several Jesuit authors who have contributed to the work. So, um, 
this is pretty good for positive theology and philosophy in, 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 this, in this domain. Different authors may have certain uh, divergent opinions on certain points, but we don't have the time to, to, to go through three or four different authors to do that. That's not our, our scope right here. Now, nation. A nation is a collectivity, or a group of people, if you want, whose members, bound by certain common ties, form a concrete political society, which is either independent or aspiring to independence. Certain common ties or bonds. What do we mean by this? This refers to, for example, the same origin, the same family tree, same language, traditions, institutions, life, history, territory, and same political and social tendencies. Authors have various opinions as to which is the most important. Definition of nationality. Now, okay, this is the special property or mark either of the body or the mind existing in a certain collectivity by which it is set apart from other groups of people in the physiological, psychological, historical, and cultural order. You notice that these definitions are a bit complicated, but you know, for a study it's probably good to have it clear so we don't uh, you know, misinterpret certain uh, words. Right, so uh, we all understand the meaning of nationality. We all belong to some nationality, whether we be Irish, English, or Scottish, or Italian, or Spanish, or German, uh, Austrian, Dutch, doesn't make it, I mean, we belong to something, right? right. And often, perhaps for many of us, the fatherlands of our parents are over in Europe still. <laughs> That's where their ancestors are located. That they came over to our country, you know, immigrated. So the principle of nationality, what is this principle? And how does it apply to the forming of a civil society? Is it good or is it bad? Okay. In the absolute or unlimited sense, this refers to the doctrine defending that any individual nationality has the right to constitute one state solely and completely by itself, no matter what rights anyone else may have. It doesn't sound very good, does it? Okay, we know that's clear, it's not good. And in the restricted or limited sense, this is the doctrine which teaches that the abstract right, so the right of each nationality, can be, can be applied in practice, provided that it doesn't go contrary to any you know, civil law, you know, international law, or provided that the, the union with the other nation, nationality does not allow the other nationality to attain its own ends within that state. So still not good. The church teaching. The principle of nationality, in the absolute sense, is not true. So with regard to the forming of society, the unique cause of civil society is the tacit or express consent of the members to unite in a civil society under a common authority. So they, they consent. Well, this can be done uh, both among those who are of the same nationality or for those who are of diverse nationalities. Therefore, the principle of nationality is, is not the foundation of establishing a, a nation. Can't be. Okay. Historically, many states, in fact, have been constituted by many diverse nationalities and have led a life of prosperity and tranquility, such as Switzerland and the United States. Therefore, it is possible for a state to form or to be formed out of many diverse nationalities, and therefore the principle of nationality shows itself false historically. 
So these people say that you, you, only those nations which have the same, people who have the same nationality can form a civil society. See, it's just false. Even historically, it's false. Now, if various nationalities be united to form one state, even though at first it may have happened by force, nevertheless, over the course of time, prescriptions or quasi-prescriptions can be given by which that state, maybe at first illegitimate, now becomes legitimate, for it is now clearly demanded by the common good and also by the, the, the good of each nationality living together. Therefore, not even in this case can one invoke the principle of nationality to impose political separation of various, various nationalities by force. Here's a little note here. Nationality of itself only carries an aptitude for forming political union, or perhaps a remote and indeterminate convenience. But it never gives a juridical right to overturn the existing social order to accommodate its own ends. That's revolutionary. That's not, that's not Catholic, you see. Now, the important point concerning international society, right? the world state, if you want to call it, the global union, is it, what, what, what are the principles? The thesis of the church right, is the following. Civil societies in view of their proper ends, are ordered to the formation of a certain, a certain higher international society according to nature itself. And a little, a little note as an introduction. In the view of the immense changes in the world since the Industrial Revolution and modern-day technological advancements, it has become more and more necessary for nations to look to one another, to collaborate with one another, in order to ensure adequately the common good and temporal prosperity of each nation. That's an established fact. We know that. For example, modern societies are now dependent upon various natural resources in order to function properly. Gas, oil, electricity. As well as upon the modern means of travel, communication, and so on. Which oftentimes cannot be obtained without having recourse to other nations. Consequently, it is clear that in our day, with the world's present degree of industrial and technological advancement, there is a clear need for all nations to collaborate for the common good of all. In the view of this, it is necessary to study the Catholic principles which treat of the union of all nations into an international society for the common good. That's why we're doing this. So let's see. Explanation of terms. First of all, international society is the moral and stable union of all civil societies working together by their actions to the common good of all. The causes, the material cause, what makes it, what makes it up? Well, they are the civil societies as such or those societies enjoying full independence and authority. Right? The formal cause is the juridical bond, or the complexus of rights and duties existing in these societies by the force of this union, by which they mutually bind themselves to assure those things which are necessary to the common end of all. So there's got to be some authority, obviously. The final cause, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this society? Which is going to determine how it functions. Okay, and if we can keep in our mind, I put some notes, I think, later on, concerning the, uh, the League of Nations, uh, the United Nations, and the um, European Union. Just straight from one of the little encyclopedias to give us some background, so we can see clearly that uh, they do not fall under the, uh, the guidelines of a true international society. They're harmful. They go contrary to the natural law governing the establishing uh, of an uh, international society. Yeah. We knew that already, but we'll see why now, if we don't already know. 
The final cause is the common good of all the societies, which is the public temporal prosperity of all civil societies. <laughs> public prosperity is understood as that which is common to all nations. It consists in the defense of the rights of the individual nations. Obviously, we must mention here peace, the peace and tranquility of the nations, right? To ensure peace, yes, of course. It consists, and also in publicly offering to all nations those means or goods, those benefits, which they are able to affect by their united efforts. All the nations working together can affect these things, and which they could not provide individually, on an individual basis. Two things, therefore, are required, and these are very important points. First, that this international society be only a complement to the activity of each nation by providing on one hand, on the one hand, that which is required for each nation's prosperity, and on the other hand, by providing those things which an individual nation cannot provide on its own. And secondly, that it be truly common to all civil societies, not excluding any society in principle. For this international society must be formed not only in favor of a few nations, but in favor of all the nations for the common good. Now, let's explain the authority of this international society. Well, there must be an authority to direct the, the members to the common good, to the end, to the goal. They need an authority to unite the wills. The authority must exist necessarily, and it consists in the right of binding and directing all the members of the international society, thus all nations, to the efficacious cooperation towards the common international good. The authority must be endowed with triple social authority or power, which is the legislative, to make laws, executive, to execute the laws and judicial, to judge cases, to impose penalties, right? A court. We're not going to get into all those uh, uh, details here. Well, I don't want to time, <laughs> but the principle is here, la laid out. These powers do not arise from the delegation of the members of the societies, but they arise from the natural law itself. For since international society is a natural society, then it follows that its authority must come from nature itself and not from any convention of man. What are the duties of the international society, if indeed one is eventually formed? Right now, the ones that exist are not true. They're false. Okay. But eventually, if one is able to be formed according to the true principles of nature and Catholic order, what are the duties? Right? I mean, obviously, the duties of the United Nations, the League of Nations are the same. It should be this right now. It should be these right now. Let's see what they are. First of all, this authority has the right of governing the society of nations with full independence from any other temporal power. The society of nations, not individual nations. Okay, first point. It has the right of directing and requiring the collaboration of all nations toward the common good of the human community. It has the right of intervening and of peaceably solving all conflicts which arise among nations, if they cannot be solved by the nations themselves, of course. It has the right of repressing, even by force, all serious disturbances of the social international order. So the question can arise, well, uh, can this international society establish uh, an army, a police force? Well, if a, if a civil society can do that, well, then the international society can do that too. But that's another question. That's the application of these principles. We don't have time to discuss that right here and now, anyway. The duties of each nation relative to this authority. So what is our obligation as Americans toward the true international society? It certainly doesn't suppress our, our nationality, uh, our nation as Americans. No, 
uh, then it would be false. It would be a false uh, international society if it wanted to do that. You see. Which, unfortunately, these modern uh, global unions are tending to want to do right? because they're motivated by uh, the wrong, wrong principles, the principles of control of the world rather than directing toward the common good. We know that. So the first duty, the civil societies will have the right of demanding protection and material assistance whenever it is necessary. So that's, a, that's actually a right of the nations. And each nation will have an obligation to submit to the international authority, just as members of civil society must submit to their legitimate authority, but in all those things that pertain to the attainment of the common good, or the international common good of all the nations. The relation of the international authority to the national authority, in no way does this subordination go contrary to or offend the proper competence of the civil authority in its own domain. For under this international authority, the individual nations still exercise full autonomy within the limits of their own territories, and they direct the activities of their subjects toward the common good. Next point. The individual nations alone have the care of their proper, proper civil order, and alone establish laws, and alone enter into treaties and pacts with other countries. And next point, the international authority shall never interfere in those things which can be sufficiently handled by the authority of the individual nations. Fifth point, the relation of the international authority to the natural law and to the church. This international authority, since it is the supreme custodian of justice and of peace, cannot arbitrarily establish and determine rules of law, but it must necessarily have before its eyes the precepts of the natural law impressed upon the hearts of all and known by the light of natural reason. And in order to facilitate the attainment of justice without falling into error, it must seek the counsel of the, and doctrine of the Catholic Church, the supreme spiritual authority on the face of the earth, which has a, a higher end, which is the eternal salvation of man. And this intimate collaboration between the supreme temporal authority, to which is commissioned the care of the international common good, and the supreme spiritual authority, to which is commissioned the care of the supernatural good of all men, will be of the greatest assistance to the supreme international authority. Good. See? Errors. International individualism teaches that the natural independence of the individual state is such that the existence of any authority superior to the civil authority is not possible. In international relations, everything depends upon the free will of the individual nations. This opinion in the international order is similar to that of Hobbes and Rousseau in the individual order. Like man is his own little god, and it's only by his free will does he submit himself to anyone else. He can't be constrained by any other greater good than himself to do it. It is the opinion of all those who subscribe to uh, state absolutism and state totalitarianism. Now, international totalitarianism, on the other hand, desires that all national boundaries disappear, such that only one civil society is formed from all the nations of the world. By this agreement, true prosperity and peace for all men shall be obtained, for it shall suppress all, nations, uh, all national egotism, which is the root of all social evils. Well, this is the opinion of Marxist communism. 
And we're absolutely against this uh, as well. Church doctrine, which is a universal scholastic doctrine. The points, first point. Nature itself postulates as a complement of human society this international society of nations, to which all independent nations should belong. The society, however, must be endowed with true social authority, independent from the authority of the other nations. As far as how this authority is determined or chosen, as long as it's done legitimately, that's up to them. Right? In general, it is sufficient that the societies themselves must choose this authority, and it can take any legitimate form, a monarchy, an oligarchy, and so on. And it may consist of various subordinate bodies, elected for a determined time, and so on, and all nations are obliged to submit to it. Second point, the internal sovereignty of each nation cannot be diminished in any way, for this international authority may only intervene when the national authority seeks to impose something by transgressing its limits against the natural rights of others. Otherwise, both in internal and external affairs, the proper authority of each individual nation must be allowed to be exercised without interference from the international authority. A third point. The establishment of this international society and authority becomes necessary when a very high degree of civilization is reached when there is a great degree of communication between nations and great progress in the means of communication. This necessity does not need to exist in all nations at once. It is sufficient that it, that it first exists in the more advanced and cultured nations then later in the other nations. And the fourth point, the moment of the perfect constitution of this international society and authority can only be accomplished by degrees. First of all, there must be a realization of the necessity of this kind of perfect international society. Then, the nations must rid themselves of any national egotism. And then it must be agreed upon among these nations as the proper norm to the solution of the conflicts which may arise in the international community. And then the author makes a point, national egotism poses a real difficulty, but not an impossibility. And the proof is from the natural needs of society. The proof that an international society is a natural development of the human society when the civilization becomes uh, advanced to such a great degree. So we read, Modern civil societies cannot adequately attain their natural end without the assistance of an international society of nations. Why? For today, given the complications of international life, the social and economic changes since industrial and present-day technological revolutions, and the resulting interdependence of the nations of the world upon each other. Civil societies are unable to defend their rights and are unable to obtain their temporal prosperity in an acceptable fashion without the assistance of some international society of nations with true international authority. Additionally, the protection of the rights of nations, the preservation of international peace, right, and so on, and the proper perfection of these nations, which they naturally seek, both require the existence of such an international society. So, these are the principles. The application has to be done according to circumstances and the uh, willingness of the nations to uh, submit to the natural law, the law of God by nature, and uh, ultimately to the, the law of Christ and the church. Boy, so what do we do? The whole world, the whole order of the world is against the Catholic faith. It's against, against Christ. So we have to do what the apostles did, what the first Christians did during the terrible persecutions of the church. They didn't go up to, you know, excuse me, uh, Nero, I'm a Christian, and you're wrong. <laughs> You've got to submit to the law of nature. 
and look, you know, see here, all the points are against human rights. Would that accomplish any good? No. He'd be the, that person would be the first martyr <laughs> under Nero, right? No, see, well, but it could be imprudent, too. We don't want to provoke. So the early Christians didn't provoke uh, uh, social disorder and unrest. That's not the purpose of the, of the Catholic faith. When our Lord talks about the great battle, uh, the conquering the enemy, well, it's very clear through sacred scriptures that the first enemy is ourself. Our Lord said, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, unless he who uh, you know, can be my disciple, he who chooses to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will save it. So you see, the first one we, enemy we have to conquer the, the, is ourself. And that's the first principle of Catholic action. That's what Father uh, Doran mentioned yesterday, the necessity of, of prayer and penance and sacrifice in the daily life as a foundation for any kind of Catholic action. Because if we can't conquer ourselves, then do we think, are we going to presume to try to conquer the rest? <laughs> no, because we're conquering the rest then with the wrong motives, the wrong principles. See? It's by coercion, not by, by the grace of Christ. You know. Now the last points here concern the global movements. Just an overview. The great empires in the history of the world, right? The Greek Empire, okay, we can go, they're the main ones, there are other, yeah, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the British Empire, which I noted here, very important to note, which is the greatest international movement of naturalism in the history of the world since Christ, well, even before, because now it's organized, right? Boy, and it's because of this industrial revolution of the powers, the forces that came in and took hold of these poor people, you see. They suffer very much over in Britain because of the powers that uh, have uh, changed the whole, the whole spirit of the people. Not spirit that changed the spirit, but have suppressed the spirit. And trying to, to uh, uh, push a naturalism, a natural goodness, a socialism. And, and America is a recipient of these, of these principles. Then the American and French revolutions, right, the worldwide movement for the international republic based on naturalism and ecumenism. Of course, we can also mention uh, the, uh, the empire of uh, Napoleon, right? They wanted to subjugate all the nations of Europe. And then, uh, of course, you have the Bolshevik Revolution, Russia. Then we have uh, uh, the desire of Hitler to subjugate all of Europe under his uh, nation. No. Okay, now I'm going to skip this right now. We don't have time. But see, I, the formation of the League of Nations, the United Nations and European Union. I put that in there just for your information so you have some, at least some information, some background knowledge on these organizations, where they started, who started them, and who were the, the permanent members. Already something tells you that something's no good because you, you, you read uh, uh, through page 15 here on the League of Nations. I put Woodrow Wilson presented the plan. Okay. And farther down, uh, the several permanent members, France, Britain, Italy, Japan, Germany, the Soviet Union. You see, when you have a, a, a nation such as the Soviet Union, which is, a con uh, which is publicly acting against the natural rights of men and against God, how can they be a member of, uh, of the international community for the common good of the rest of the nations? And a permanent, a permanent member. Well, look at the next one, the United Nations. Founded after World War II, ended in 1945. A little farther down, uh, the UN today has the same basic purpose and structure as it did when it was founded in 1945. What's its primary purpose? The greatest benefit to mankind right, uh, is to maintain world peace. Yeah. 
And then that, in turn, helps encourage the real reason, right? Business and international trade. But the next page we see, it serves as a symbol of international order and global unity. I've highlighted certain points. And then it's interesting to note, the next paragraph, German philosopher Immanuel Kant proposed a federation or League of Nations in order to preserve peace and to stop aggressive nations. Okay? Let's see here. A little farther down, Roosevelt. Toward the very bottom. Okay, the last paragraph toward the bottom. Five countries received this veto power. And these are the, um, the, the permanent members. They are United States, Britain, France, Soviet Union, and China. The five permanent members. You see, uh, there's a, an anti-Christian element. Certainly when you see the uh, Soviet Union and China... Then, uh, and also we see the element of anti-Christian movement element within the other nations as well. So there's, it's certainly not for the common good of the world. Okay, lastly, let's just turn to uh, page 18. Is there a worldwide conspiracy against God, against the uh, church, against the children of God? We don't want to get into too much detail. We're not here to discuss just, just discuss the idea of conspiracy because... Uh, we belong to the mystical body of Christ, and Christ is the victor. But, but there is certain... Well, let's see. First of all, the conspiracy against Christ and his mystical body. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, Lucifer deceives Adam and Eve, the promise that man will be his own God, and will thus govern the, govern the earth without God. The idea of mankind governing the earth as his own God, which is probably, in a certain sense, the foundation of the modern idea of globalism. Man is his own God. And, and then Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth stood up, and the princes met together against the Lord and against his, his anointed one, against Christ. So there's a conspiracy right there. And we can go over and over in the Old Testament to show this. The Tower of Babel, the one world order, it's already there. The New Testament, the Pharisees, the conspiracy of the scribes and Pharisees against Christ and against the apostles, against the church. Apocalypse 2.9 and 3.9, the conspiracy of the synagogue of Satan. I know thy tribulation, we read, and thy poverty, but thou art rich, and that thou art slandered by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, next page. Uh, the Apocalypse, so you, can, you can read all these citations. Behold, the red dragon having two heads and ten horns. <clears throat> the dragon was angry against the woman, went to make war with the rest of her seed. The beast of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten diadems. The mark of the beast, the right hand or forehead, no one will be able to buy or sell. The beast overcomes the saints, but the ultimate victory was with Christ. Apocalypse 13, 7. And it was allowed to wage war with the saints and to overcome them. And there was given to it authority over every tribe and people and tongue, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb who have been slain from the foundation of the world. Apocalypse 19, 19. The beast and the kings and the armies of the earth will make war with Christ, but the ultimate victory was with Christ. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against him who was sitting upon the horse and against his army. So there is this conspiracy of the union of nations against Christ and his church. It's clear. But the beast was seized, and with it the false prophet and these two were cast alive in the pool of fire. And the rest were killed with the sword of him who sits upon the horse, the sword that goes forth 
out of his mouth. There's a mystery of the sword of Christ, the mouth. That's the preaching of the gospel, the truth. Perhaps there's going to be some, some, some great prodigies worked at the end of the, the end times of the preaching when the church comes back to the tradition. And then the force of the, of the, of the authority of Christ coming from the preachers, from the priests and then the church leaders to, uh, to uh, you know, touch the hearts of, of, of many people in the world. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen. And the persecution of the church down the centuries and the Christians. Okay, we saw the conspiracy of the Pharisees. St. Paul seeking out the Christians in order to put them in prison. The great persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. The secret agenda of the Gnostics and the Albigenses and the Catharists, the Manichaeans, false Templars, all these things, which had to be investigated by the Holy Inquisition. A little note I have here concerning Rashi, or Rabbi Solomon, of the 14th century, rabbinical school of Troy, France. When you think of Troy, think of the Trojan horse and the method, the tactic of the Trojan horse. That's what, the, what has happened. Right? In this school, there was a formulation of the arguments against the Catholic doctrine and revelation already. We read in William Thomas Walsh, in the 13th century, when the Catholic Church rejoiced in the full burgeoning uh, of that rich and generous civilization she had reanimated and purified, the Jews were creating at Troy, France, a remarkable school of exegesis in which were being forged most of the arguments to be used by Protestant preachers against the Church. The center and master of the group was a very rich Jew by the name of Isaac Chatelain, better known now as Isaac of Troy, a man learned in the Talmud. Rabbi Salomon, the son of this happily Isaac, hapless Isaac, became famous under the name of Rashi, Rashi, founder of the Talmudic school of Champagne. And through Rashi, the ideas of Isaac were transmitted to Protestantism. They were adopted early in the 14th century by a Franciscan monk of Jewish descent, Nicholas of Lyra, and the arguments of this Nicholas of Lyra powerfully influenced Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And another point, the Protestant Revolution, the conspiracy against Philip II of Spain, 1500s, that, 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 that critical century which saw the, the overturning of Christian order by the political maneuvers of the enemies of, of Christ and his church, taking advantage of the Protestant Revolution which was being directed by, a, by other more intelligent forces, you see, people, in the political domain, in the financial domain. We read, the spy network, especially in England during the Protestant Revolution. Morano families from Spain and Portugal formed a vast network all over the world. The spread of members of the same family enabled them to facilitate commercial transactions between the different countries and expressly to operate the movements of bullion needed to settle the balance of trade. And thus, the export trade of the expanding world fell into their hands. The profits were hugely augmented by usury, which, however, was still in its infancy as a means of enslaving whole populations. Philip II and most of the men of his time were only vaguely aware of the potentialities of this movement. Its political importance, however, was already becoming obvious. Under cover of these very profitable business activities, the international Jews were becoming the backbone of the English spy system, one of the most elaborate and effective that the world has ever known. By means of their, their intelligencers, right, they were doing all in their power to raise up an anti-Christian empire to shatter the power of Catholic Spain. And the footnote, uh, the, the, at the very bottom, number eight, that's an uh, interesting point. Dr. Lucian Wolf was a Jewish historian. He notes, 
I mean, this is a quote, number eight is a quote from, from a Jewish historian, by the way. So you can look at that. Dr. Wolf is a, a Jewish historian. But Walsh continues, a letter to Bernardino de Mendoza, Philip's ambassador in Paris, reveals some of the methods by which Queen Elizabeth was aided in the crucial years of her struggle against Philip. Mendoza forwarded the letter to the king, who carefully underlined important words and names, and had the facts confirmed, but somewhat too late. It called attention to the activities of Geronimo Pardo in Lisbon and of Bernardo Luis in Madrid, both of them relatives of Dr. Hector Nunez, a Portuguese Jew, then living in London as a physician. Philip had Pardo and Luis arrested. Even from prison, Pardo sent letters to London by the master of a German ship who hid them in a feather bed. And one of Mendoza's informants, Pedro de Santa Cruz, meanwhile made a formal deposition, giving some very interesting details about the secret Jews who composed the English spy ring. Details accepted as facts for the most part by modern Jewish historians, though, I put through, but though, among others, there has been a mysterious silence. So correct that, that the word is though and not through. Most of those Jews pretended to be Catholics in Catholic countries. In London, they were Protestants, and they took the bread and wine in the manner and form as do the heretics. Okay, and then the last page. The modern globalism presupposes control or manipulation of the political and economical order of nations. All right, we already saw this already. The political order, universal democracy, separation of church and state, religious liberty, false idea of human dignity and human rights, based on the law, the rights of man, the laws of men, and not the natural law or the laws of Christ and his church, you see? Control or manipulation of news media and communication networks so as to manipulate public opinion, the telephone, television, radio, internet, newspapers, and so on. Social order, social institutions, education have to be controlled. And the economic order, yes, control of the following is necessary, we saw. The control of the natural resources of the, of the country. For modern civilization is now dependent upon these. Gas, oil, electricity, for homes and transportation and so on. The banks and finance, stock market, national interest rates and so on. Uh, I put a little note here for those of you who have read Philip II by William Thomas Walsh. He speaks of the Spice Trust set up in Amsterdam in the, late, in the 1500s by uh, those who were expelled from Spain, powerful, and, and who came from Portugal, set up the, the banks and the spice trust in Amsterdam, from which we see the beginning of the, of the international financial power, which eventually was transferred to the Bank of London to, because they had their investments because of the Industrial Revolution in, in London, you see. So. But our goal is to, to live a, a Catholic life in, unfortunately, a faithless society, not to revolt or ca cause a, a political unrest, a national unrest, a revolution. That's not the purpose of, of the members of the Catholic Church. We do what is in our power to uh, use whatever modern technology we have within moderation. We have to use it within reason, use it within moderation. We don't want to become Amish or fall into isolationism, saying that there's no, there's no social authority anymore because it's so bad, therefore there's none. Therefore we should just gather together in groups of little families and homes and little villages and we have our own little state. Well, that's anarchy. You see, that's not Catholic either. So we want to find a balance, you know, 
Uh, it's certainly not wrong to want to relocate to the Catholic centers that we do have in the society or the of good traditional priests of schools and maybe they have nuns and brothers or whatever to, to slowly build up around those, you see. That's a natural, a natural development of a Catholic city. But uh, there are so many, so many things that, uh, by which we can be led astray and, to, and fall into the hands of the enemy. Uh, we just have to use our head. Common sense oftentimes will be a good guide. You know? And uh, also the counsel of good men. Good men who have shown by the raising of their families that there's a balance, there's a integrity. You know? Ask the, uh, the, uh, the counsel of these men, too. They do a lot of good. Okay, I think we will end there. Um, these notes, uh, I'm not... Um, well, I mean, there are certain advantages of text, <laughs> right? So uh, you have everything before your eyes so you can you know, study the doctrine of the church with regard to this very important question today of globalism, that well, you will know the truth of the church and how to uh, distinguish between truth and error with regard to the United Nations, the European Union, the uh, League of Nations that was once here. You see. It'll be very helpful and necessary, really, for Catholic men to understand the, the, the Catholic natural principles of the social order. Right? In order, eventually, hope one day, we hope one day, uh, to, to re restore the true uh, Christian order in, in our country and to work for the restoration of the true uh, Catholic society in, uh, in the other nations. So somebody has to know the principles first so that when the time does come, they will say, well, what do we do? And you 50 men can raise your hand. I know. And you can be good counselors, you see to those in government who perhaps may convert. I mean, God works his miracles, you know. Um, but then they will need men who have the knowledge uh, and the wisdom and the prudence to be able to implement Catholic principles little by little to reshape a society and reform um, uh, the, the true uh, Catholic or Christian social order. Okay, gentlemen, we'll now say a prayer. <laughs> In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. And the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Same pious attempt. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.